All right, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here, along with Ted Medward. We're going to be continuing our series on race relations leading up to the American Civil War. And uh, I would just like to say this as an intro. The, uh, we're being lied to by both sides. We're being lied to. Well, there was nothing but lies. Uh, typically, wars begin with lies about the enemy. Uh, so what else is new? And it was no less true during the Civil War. And we had agents, from, Jewish agents in the north, uh, casting aspersions on Southerners. We had Jewish agents in the south, casting aspersions on Northerners. And uh, our people picked up that propaganda and sl- sl- slung, slung mud at each other for, for leading up to the Civil War and during the Civil War. And that's how wars are. The Jews are masters at propaganda masters at manipulating people and getting us to hate one another. And so, uh, Ted, uh, maybe you can introduce the subject to us and uh, pick it up where we left off last week. Sure. Well, it's a big topic. It's a huge topic. Mm -hmm. There's no way we can do justice to it in just a few audios. Right. There's There's so much going on. There's a lot of background context, background history, little small nuances and details that we need to have appreciation and respect for. So I, I know people are going to tune in and hear this and say, oh, well, you forgot this, you forgot this, right. you forgot that. <laughs> well, there's a lot, folks. If you stick with us, we'll try to we'll try to plow through and eventually get to all of it. Um, la- last time on the first installment, uh, Pastor Eli, you and I touched upon um, – I guess the racial background and the opinions of Abraham Lincoln. Right now, we, oh, yeah. we were taught. We were taught in grade school, elementary school. Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, uh, prosecuted the Civil War to free the slaves, and he's the great emancipator, and all this sort of stuff. Right. And when you dig down into it, folks, it, it simply <laughs> doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It's simply it's not, not true. true. It is not true. Yes. Thank you. Right. It's a myth. There's a lot of war propaganda, and of course, the old the old saying applies, especially to the Civil War, that the victors write the history books. That's right. And, and, and Lincoln, in the modern historians, uh, what present and past, might I add, uh, did a great job in protecting this man's image and polishing him up. And I, I've read so many things back and forth, uh, Pastor Eli, that I, I still don't know what to make of this man. If you read Eustace <laughs> Mullins, Eustace Mullins was convinced this that, that Abraham Lincoln was a was a secret Canaanite out, oh, out boy. to destroy the, the, the people yeah. of Shem, the true people of Shem, the the, the U.S. Southerners. Uh, the material well, that kind of, that's today. Kind, that's kind of what happened, isn't it? <laughs> right. Right. Well, right. there's some truth there. If yeah. uh, if you tune in to the libertarians, there's uh, one in particular, Thomas DiLorenzo, that wrote about um, – oh, yeah. He wrote two separate books. Um, I, I forget the titles uh, now that I mention them. But essentially going into that, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a tyrant. He was a warmonger. He was a dictator. Mm-hmm. And uh, countless crimes were committed. He tried to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. To, to prosecute the war, okay. he arrested the entire state legislature of the state of Maryland because they were going to vote for secession, and they were a border state. And in uh-huh. Abe Lincoln's mind, to lose a border state was to lose a war. Right. So, right. There's a lot going on. Various people have uh, really good takes and really good history on Abraham Lincoln. There's a lot there. We're going to try to cut through some of it. Uh, pertaining to what he thought about emancipation and repatriation. We talked last time about the American Colonization Society. Right. I didn't really get into that. I have a Encyclopedia Britannica, maybe one or two paragraphs that we can sum that up for listeners who aren't familiar. Right. Yeah. And, and we got into last time, um, I was telling you back when we did audios in 2017, I believe it was, um, I think uh, – if I recall correctly, the first one we did was the weekend of uh, the Charlottesville fiasco, right? In August of 2017. <laughs> great timing, yeah. So great timing, pretty fitting, right? Yeah, pretty and fitting. I told you last time, Eli, you kind of hit me with uh, this angle that I never really thought about, and you kind of surprised me. 
because so much of what what I read about the Civil War came from uh, pro-Southern, uh, I guess you could say neo-Confederate right. uh, sort of sources. And like you pointed out, they really want to dance around the issue of slavery and the issue and of race. race. And ra- exactly. And, yeah. Right. And, and you really put me onto this and opened my eyes to it. And there is a lot there that, that I was yeah. just not clued into and you're not taught about in school. Right. The popular right. myth that you get from public education, like I said, is you get this impression that the U.S. Civil War was like a humanitarian aid mission uh, launched by Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans to rescue these poor, helpless Africans in <laughs> southern slavery. Okay? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's obviously not. That's obviously not true. Right. Obviously Correct. not true. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So there, there is a lot happening here. There's many different angles. Yeah. Uh, that we could get into, but yeah. we're, we're going to focus on this race issue. I do have an excellent um, article that basically touches on all the elements that I kind of single-handedly rounded up, including a lot of the content in the Lincoln Negro Policy book by uh-huh. Ernest Sevier Cox that we um, yeah started to discuss last uh, a, week. A quick uh, a quick cut about uh, uh, Ernest Cox was he pro Lincoln, anti Lincoln, or was he neutral on this issue? his writings because there's a lot of southerners who actually support lincoln and you don't see that kind of literature very often okay so where's uh where's cox at politically on this i you think know? i come away with the impression when i originally read this that cox is in favor of lincoln's negro policy he agrees with abraham lincoln uh Aaron Sevier cox yeah. wrote that he was friends with marcus garvey uh, now, Marcus oh, wow. Garvey is the one who gets cast aside, and we know more about right. Martin Luther King Jr. We know more about Malcolm X. Everyone kind of forgets about Marcus Garvey. Right. And I, I suppose he's the original godfather of the Back to Africa stuff. Yes, he was. African Americans. So. Yes, he was. Okay, very interesting. But uh, Ernest Severe Cox, was he was from Tennessee, right? He was a white man from Tennessee, as I understand. He is a white man, and I don't know what state he originally okay. comes from. I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Oh, okay. There's a town in Tennessee called Sevierville, which I assume is named after the Sevier family because that's his middle name, uh, probably from his mother's side, Ernest Sevier Cox, right? But, yeah, I always thought that Cox was a white man. But, he, uh, you know, if, if he supported the Back to Africa movement, which a lot of white people do, like yours truly, <laughs> right? I could see him getting together with uh, Marcus Garvey. Okay. Right. He, he talks about a few other figures. I, I guess one was Paul Cuff, who was another uh, African man, uh, C-U-F-F-E. He mentions him in the book, uh, Henry mm. and Turner. He profiles a few uh, figures uh, in the black uh, Negro, I guess they called it Negro nationalism back then was uh-huh. another term that they had for it. But right. he profiles a few of them and mentions them in this book that um, is published by the Barnes Review. Willis Cardo has a preface to it at the beginning as well. Hmm. And uh, it's a very interesting thing. Now, uh, when you when this came up, I sort of uh, you know, I, I kind of just stuck to the pro-Confederate, the libertarian view on Lincoln that this guy's a monster, that he yeah. wrecked the country. <laughs> Right. But now that I see this detail, you know, I'm starting to think uh, this was correct. And I'm starting to see that a lot of Northerners were not necessarily abolitionist out of. Uh, oh, out of there, there are very few African-Americans. There, there were very few. That was only the Eastern liberals. That's where all the Jewish money was. Those are the agitators for, quote unquote, liberation of blacks, not the not the regular Republicans. Correct. So there's a lot of detail. And if you go back to the 18, uh, I think it's the 1840s, 1847 or 1848, there is a uh, free soil movement that pops up. And this is mostly uh, white northerners who are concerned with stopping the spread of slavery westward into the new territories because they want white free labor to occupy the new states, the new territories out west. Uh, they, They are not concerned about a 
emancipating African slaves and making them their political equals, okay? Right. They're interested in having a white country with free white labor for themselves and their posterity. Amen. Amen. So you know that the great emancipator image is false. Very not, false. Yeah. Very false. Oh, We're okay. going to get into a lot of that today. Um, I, I came across this article from the Institute for Historical Review. It is quite long. I imagine it's going to take up uh, the duration of uh, our hour here and probably go into the next one. But okay. it's such a well-written piece. There's plenty of quotes. There's a ton of footnotes. And he gets into all the little tidbits that Ernest Seaver <laughs> Cox had in his book that I kind of uh-huh. have to jump around to get to. All right. So we should we should read it, and I'll read it. You can stop me and chime in if uh-huh. need be. Um, I will mention, since I talked about free soil in the 1840s, and of course, uh, you know, the Louisiana Purchase was what, 1802, 1803? Congress got into this issue of adding new states, and they more or less wanted to stop the South from spreading slavery westward. And this is a big contention from the 1820s with the Missouri Compromise into the 1850s with another compromise in the Senate. Uh, The South realizes they've basically been outmaneuvered by the North, and slavery is going to stay in the Southeast. And not only that. We see slavery agitators like the um, the Eastern liberal abolitionists, like you mentioned, Garrison and his radical oh, yeah. abolitionists, right, right. Uh, uh, culminating in, in John Brown and his raid in Harper's Ferry, where he wants to arm Negroes and, and have basically a genocide of white Southerners uh, right. simply for slavery existing. So by yeah. 1860, when Abraham Lincoln wins the election, he's not on any ballots in any Southern states. And the Southerners realize, wow, we're boxed in a corner. We have nothing to do. And if we don't get out of this union, there are these radical abolitionists, these John Brown nutcases are going to come down here and arm Negroes and stir them up. So I think the South sort of panics and realize they have no options left but to leave. And, uh, you know, there is a. I have this book. It's called Anti-Slavery Rhetoric and Violence. It's produced by by one of the writers at the Abbeville Institute in South Carolina. Uh-huh. I think the, ne- the gentleman's name is D. Jonathan White, who wrote the book. And we kind of forget this just John Brown, this John Brown incident in Harper's Ferry trying to start a Negro revolt and to kill all white Southerners. This is um, something that historians sort of gloss over, but this is a big motivation for Southerners to get the hell out of the Union and secede. This scares right. the daylights out of them. It sure does. It sure does. But you have to see the radical abolitionists in the Northeast as kind of like a Joe Biden, <laughs> right? Uh, he's, they're agents of the Rothschilds, agitating for war and scaring the hell out of people, especially the Southerners, right? Right. It, it is pro-revolution rhetoric aimed at the South, and the South bought it. Okay, and I can understand. I can understand. Just like uh, the the American people today have bought the rhetoric that the that the Israeli state is our only ally in the Middle East, right? Okay, right. Now, reviewing a lot of this material about the fiasco of slavery. It really reminds me of the war on the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. If you remember back in the Obama era, we had Sandy Hook. We had these school shootings, these mass shootings, and the media really just pounced on gun rights and the Second Amendment as this mm-hmm. new evil slavery that we just got to get rid of or else we'll never have peace again in America. And I think yeah. it's not exactly apples to apples here, but it's that same sort of drumbeat that the North uh, pushed across the country in the 1850s. You have uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe with Uncle Tom's Cabin, and, and that portrays a very, very uh, like a bleeding heart kind of view of, right. of Southern slavery and that we need to stop this and help these these poor Africans that are held as slaves. There yeah. is another book that I recently just found out about. This is um, – if I had to give a, a comparison – if you folks have ever looked into the truth about World War II, there was this Jew, Theodore Kaufman, that wrote Germany Must Perish. Right. Okay. Yep. There, so there's a book in 1857 written 
by this man, Hinton Rowan Helper. It's called The Impending Crisis of the South and How to Fix It. Uh-huh. And it is basically saying the Northerners need to go into the South, kill all the Southerners, <laughs> and basically end slavery by bayonet if need be. Oh, man. So Southerners in the 1850s, you know, they're having this drumbeat, all this propaganda shoved down their throats, and they really realize they're backed in the corner and have nothing left to do. And um, I, I do mm-hmm. think that the South got screwed. And you see that in 1850 oh, yeah. before John Calhoun passed away. Yeah. He said yeah. as much on the Senate floor. And the writing was on the wall in the 1850s. They saw disunion right. was coming. A lot of people saw disunion was coming. Right. So yes. I, I don't want to go on and on with this forever. We could get into the topic. But, yeah. Um, well, let me just I, I say just... Yeah, one more thing because about the neo-Confederates is they don't talk about the Jewish involvement in all of this either. Okay? So they're hushing that up, too. Back to you. Correct. And we haven't even touched on several of the big Jewish uh, figures in the Civil War in the Rothschild connection. That's going to come later. There's yeah. a lot of detail there, but yeah. we haven't really touched on the August Belmonts, the right. Emil Erlanger, the John Slidell, the Judah yeah. Benjamin. All right. That's right. We haven't, that's right. We haven't got into any of that yet, folks. That's coming. Yeah, that's um, called conspiracy, folks. <laughs> Anti-white right. conspiracy with a lot of Shabazz goys like Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Okay, yeah, masterminds of division. Yeah, okay. So we talked about uh, last time on part one, we talked about the American Colonization Society briefly, and we didn't really get into it. So I have two paragraphs here that I got. This is from Encyclopedia Britannica. So let me just read these for for listeners not familiar with it, exactly what it is. So the American Colonization Society was an American organization dedicated to transporting freeborn blacks and emancipated slaves to Africa. It was founded in 1816 by Robert Finley, a Presbyterian minister, and some of the country's most influential men, including Francis Scott Key, Henry Clay, and Bushrod Washington, that was the nephew of George Washington, and the society's first president. Support for it came from local and state branches and from churches, and the federal government provided some of the initial funding. The membership was overwhelmingly white, mm. some clergymen and abolitionists, but also a large number of slave owners, and all generally agreed with the prevailing view of the time that free blacks could not be integrated into white America. The society's program focused on purchasing and freeing slaves and paying their passage, and that of free blacks too, to the west coast of Africa and assisting them after their arrival there. In 1821, after a failed colonizing attempt the previous year and protracted negotiation with local chiefs, the society acquired Cape Mezzerato, uh, this area that's subsequently the site of Monroe, Monrovia, Liberia, Some saw colonization as a humanitarian effort and a means of ending slavery, but many anti-slavery advocates came to oppose the society, believing that its true intent (coughs) was to drain off the best of the free black population and preserve the institution of slavery. Reviled by extremists on both sides of the slavery debate and suffering from a shortage of money, the society declined after 1840. In 1847, Liberia, until then virtually an overseas branch of the society, declared its independence. Between 1821 and 1867, some 10,000 black Americans, along with several thousand Africans from interdicted slave ships, were resettled by the group, but its involvement with transport to Liberia ended after the American Civil War. The society focused on education and missionary activities until the early 20th century, and it was dissolved in 1964. Wow, that lasted a long time. Way it longer did, than that. Yeah. Okay. And so, basically, from what I'm able to see here, uh, Eli, in the, the bottom line I came away with um, – studying this history is that this big push for recolonization of um of black slaves after the war this this died with Lincoln. 
Republican, essentially. Yeah, it essentially right. did, because the 14th Amendment destroyed uh, white citizenship. But we can talk about that another time. Yeah. Right. Now, I've mm-hmm. seen some information that Ulysses S. Grant, when he was president, they almost annexed or took on the Dominican Republic as a U.S. territory. And they kind of had this in mind to uh, send blacks there, uh-huh. uh, the Dominican Republic and Haiti as well. And I guess that really didn't uh, pan out or come into fruition. So that's a little bit about the American Colonization Society. Um, I I will say on the last one, last week, part one, I covered David Wilmot of the famed uh, Wilmot Proviso that you learn about in AP U.S. History in 1847. David Wilmot came up with this proviso that he wanted to attach to uh, the Mexican Cession territories that slavery be banned in all those territories. And if you look up his speech in the House of Representatives, he basically gives a pro-white, pro-white nationalism Mm -hmm. speech. And this is the motivation, once again, probably almost half, I'd say, of the northern uh, folks who were against slavery. It's out of pure self-interest in pure white nationalism, folks. It's not anything else. And I have to say again, the neo-Confederates do not talk about the fact that the vast majority of white people in the North were both anti-slavery and anti-integration. <laughs> and so, so you can't be the same, both at the same time, can you? But the, radi- yeah, the radical is- leftists were. They, they were both. They wanted integration and they, wa- they wanted anti- uh, non-slavery. Yeah, okay, back to you. Sorry. Correct. Uh, so we can talk about all the different Lincoln quotes, but I, I'm almost positive this this um, piece that I ha- have here by Robert Morgan from the Institute for Historical Review. It's going to get into all these juicy details. That okay, I love juicy. So <laughs> I, I will ju- start reading this. It's quite long. It's probably going to take up the duration of what we have. If you yeah. want to stop me at any point or jump in with any commentary, uh, feel free to do so, Eli. Yeah, if you stop, if you ignore all the juicy stuff, I will. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go for it. So here we go. Institute for Historical Review. This is on their site. You can find it. The author's name is Robert Morgan. It's titled The Great Emancipator in the Issue of Race, Abraham Lincoln's Program of Black Resettlement. Many Americans think of Abraham Lincoln, above all, as the president who freed the slaves. Immortalized as the great emancipator, he is widely regarded as a champion of black freedom who supported social equality of the races, and who fought the American Civil War to free the slaves. While it is true that Lincoln regarded slavery as an evil and harmful institution, it is also true, as this paper will show, that he shared the conviction of most Americans of his time and of many prominent statesmen before and after him that blacks could not be assimilated into white society. He rejected the notion of social equality of the races and held to the view that blacks should be resettled abroad. As president, he supported projects to remove blacks from the United States. That can't possibly be true. (laughs) Okay. But actually, I've seen videos by black authors when they found out about this were absolutely amazed. I could see their jaws drop when they realized that Lincoln was not an amalgamationist. Okay? But they've been lied to also. Who hasn't been lied to? All right, please continue. That was a great start. Early experiences. This is going to be all about Lincoln, folks. Okay. In 1837, at the age of 28, the self-educated Lincoln was admitted to practice law in Illinois. In at least one case, which received considerable attention at the time, he represented a slave owner. Robert Matson, Lincoln's client, each year brought a crew of slaves from his plantation in Kentucky to a farm he owned in Illinois for seasonal work. State law permitted this, provided that the slaves did not remain in Illinois continuously for a year. In 1847, Matson brought to the farm his favorite mulatto slave, Jane Bryant, the wife of his free black overseer there and her four children. 
a dispute developed between Jane Bryant and Matson's white housekeeper, who threatened to have Jane and her children return to slavery in the South. With the help of local, local abolitionists, the Bryants fled. They were apprehended and, in an affidavit sworn out before a justice of the peace, Matson claimed them as his property. Lacking the required certificates of freedom, Bryant and the children were confined to local county jail as the case was argued in court. Lincoln lost the case, and Bryant and her children were declared free. Oh! They were they were later resettled in Liberia. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Okay. In 1842, Lincoln married Mary Todd, who came from one of Kentucky's most prominent slaveholding families. While serving as an elected representative in the Illinois legislature, he persuaded his fellow Whigs to support Zachary Taylor, a slave owner, in his successful 1848 bid for the presidency. Lincoln was also a strong supporter of the Illinois law that forbid marriage between whites and blacks. If all earthly power were given me, said Lincoln in a speech delivered in Peoria, Illinois on October 16, 1854, I should not know what to do as to <laughs> the existing institution of slavery. My first impulse would be to free all the slaves and send them to Liberia to their own native land. After acknowledging that this plan's sudden execution is impossible, he asked whether freed blacks should be made politically and socially our equals. He responds saying, my own feelings will not admit of this, he said, mm. and even if my feelings would, we well know that those of the great mass of white people will not. We cannot then make them our equals. Mm. One of Lincoln's most representative public statements on the question of racial relations was given in a speech at Springfield, Illinois, June 26, 1857. In this address, he explained why he opposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which would have admitted Kansas into the Union as a slave state. He says this, there is a natural disgust in the minds of nearly all white people to the idea of indiscriminate amalgamation of the white and black races. A separation of the races is the only perfect preventative of amalgamation. But as an immediate separation is impossible, the next best thing is to keep them apart where they are not already together. If white and black people never got together in Kansas... They will never mix blood in Kansas. Oh, that's logical. Correct. <laughs> Racial separation, Lincoln went on to say, quote, must be affected by colonization of the country's blacks to a foreign land. The enterprise is a difficult one, he acknowledged, but he went on to say, but where there is a will, there is a way. And what colonization needs most is a hearty will. Will springs from the two elements of moral sense and self-interest. Let us be brought to believe it is morally right and, at the same time, favorable to, or at least not against, our interest to transfer the African to his native clime, and we shall find a way to do it, however great the task may be. To affirm the humanity of blacks, Lincoln continued, was more likely to strengthen public sentiment on behalf of colonization than the Democrats' efforts to crush all sympathy for him and cultivate and excite hatred and disgust against him. Resettlement, or quote-unquote colonization, would not succeed, Lincoln seemed to argue, unless accompanied by humanitarian concern for blacks and some respect for their rights and abilities. By apparently denying the black person's humanity, supporters of slavery were laying the groundwork for the indefinite outspreading of his bondage. The Republican program of restricting slavery to where it presently existed, he said, had the long-range benefit of denying to slaveholders an opportunity to sell their surplus bondsmen at high prices in new slave territories 
and thus encouraged them to support a process of gradual emancipation involving resettlement of the excess outside the country. Okay, uh, let me add here that there was a phrase in the South called selling South, selling your slaves South. And that is as the ground in uh, like Virginia and the northern states of uh, slaveholding colonies became worn out from overproduction, uh, they didn't need as many slaves, so they were sold south, which means they, they were sold to other plantations where the ground was still fertile and capable of growing tobacco, cotton, you know, rice, etc. Okay. Now, as the war progressed and, and as the slave owners wanted, they were in favor of selling west because that's why they wanted the new territories to have slavery so they could sell these slaves west and still make a, a nice profit for their slaves by reselling them, okay? But the North was said, no, we just don't want any more blacks. Why are you producing more? Okay? That was the real attitude of the Northerners, not that they cared at all for the blacks. They just didn't want... The, the South was in the process of overproduction of black people. That's what it was doing. All right, back to you. Earlier resettlement plans... The view that America's apparently intractable racial problem should be solved by removing blacks from this country and resettling them elsewhere, this is known as colonization or repatriation, was not a new one. As early as 1714, a New Jersey man proposed sending blacks back to Africa. In 1777, a Virginia legislature committee headed by future President Thomas Jefferson, himself a major slave owner, proposed a plan of gradual emancipation and resettlement of the state's slaves. In 1815, when an enterprising free black from Massachusetts named Paul Cuff transported, at his own expense, 38 free blacks to West Africa, his undertaking showed that at least some free blacks were eager to resettle in a country of their own and suggested what might be possible with public and even government support. In December 1816, a group of distinguished Americans met in Washington, D.C. to establish an organization to promote the cause of black resettlement. The so-called American Colonization Society was soon won backing from some of the young nation's most prominent citizens. Henry Clay, Francis Scott Key, John Randolph, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, Bushrod Washington, Charles Carroll, Millard Fillmore, John Marshall, Roger B. Tawney, Andrew Jackson, Daniel Webster, Stephen A. Douglas, and Abraham Lincoln were members. Clay, that would be Henry Clay from Kentucky, presided at the group's first meeting. Measures to resettle blacks in Africa were soon undertaken. Society member Charles Fenton Mercer played an important role in getting Congress to pass the Anti-Slave Trading Act of March 1819, which appropriated $100,000 to transport blacks to Africa. Uh -huh. in, it, in enforcing the act, Mercer suggested to President James Monroe that if blacks were simply returned to the coast of Africa and released, they would probably be re-enslaved <laughs> and, po and possibly some returned to the United States. Accordingly, and in cooperation with the society, Monroe sent agents to acquire territory on Africa's west coast, a step that led to the founding of the country now known as Liberia. Its capital city was named Monrovia in honor of the American president. With crucial society backing, black settlers began arriving from the United States in 1822. While only free blacks were at first brought over, after 1827, slaves were freed expressly for the purpose of transporting them to Liberia. Hmm. In 1847, black settlers declared Liberia an independent republic with an American-style flag and constitution. 
By 1832, the legislatures of more than a dozen states, and at that time there were only 24 in the Union, had given official approval to the society, including at least three slaveholding states. Indiana's legislature, for example, passed the following joint resolution on January 16, 1850, stating this, Be it resolved by the General Assembly of the State of Indiana, that our senators and representatives in Congress be, and they are hereby requested in the name of the state of Indiana, to call for a change of national policy on the subject of the African slave trade, and that they require a settlement on the coast of Africa with colored men from the United States, and procure such changes in our relations with England as will permit us to transport colored men from this country to Africa with whom to effect said settlement. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Hold on. A question now. Why hasn't this, why is the American Colonization Society such a hushed up topic? You never hear about this in any slavery discussion on mainstream television or radio, etc. That's right. Mm-hmm. Never ever hear about it. That's right. You're hearing about it here on your folk radio, folks, because we're not afraid to talk about anything. <laughs> All right, back to you, Ted. In January 1858, Missouri Congressman Francis P. Blair Jr. introduced a resolution in the House of Representatives to set up a committee to, quote, Inquire into the expediency of providing for the acquisition of territory either in the Central or South American states to be colonized with colored persons from the United States who are now free or who may hereafter become free and who may be willing to settle in such territory as a dependency of the United States with ample guarantees of their personal and political rights. End quote. Uh, Blair, quoting Thomas Jefferson, stated that blacks could never be accepted as the equals of whites and, consequently, urged support for a dual policy of emancipation and deportation, similar to Spain's expulsion of the Moors. Blair went on to argue that the territory acquired for the purpose would also serve as a bulwark against any further encroachment by England in the Central and South American regions. Moving on to Lincoln's support for resettlement. Lincoln's ideological mentor was Henry Clay, the eminent American scholar, diplomat, and statesman. Because of his skill in the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, Clay won national acclaim as the, quote, great compromiser and the great Uh, I'm sorry, the great pacificator, a slave owner who had humane regard for blacks. He was prominent in the campaign to resettle free blacks outside of the United States and served as president of the American Colonization Society. Lincoln joined Clay's embryonic Whig Party during the 1830s. In an address given in 1858, Lincoln described Clay as my beau ideal of a statesman, the man for whom I fought all of my humble life. The depth of Lincoln's devotion to Clay and his ideals was expressed in a moving eulogy delivered in, eight, in July 1852 in Springfield, Illinois. After praising Clay's lifelong devotion to the cause of black resettlement, Lincoln quoted approvingly from a speech given by Clay in 1827 saying this, There is a moral fitness in the idea of returning to Africa her children, adding that if Africa offered no refuge, blacks could be sent to another tropical land. Lincoln concluded, saying this, If, as the friends of colonization hope, the present and coming generations of our countrymen shall by any means succeed in freeing our land from the dangerous presence of slavery, and at the same time in restoring a captive people to their long-lost fatherland with bright prospects for the future, and this too so gradually that neither races 
nor individuals shall have suffered by the change, it will indeed be a glorious consummation. In January 1855, Lincoln addressed a meeting of the Illinois branch of the Colonization Society. The surviving outline of his speech suggests that it consisted largely of a well-informed and sympathetic account of the history of the resettlement campaign. In supporting colonization of the blacks, a plan that might be regarded as a final solution to the nation's race question, Lincoln was upholding the views of some of America's most respected figures. Okay, okay the, the great emancipator is nothing of the kind, is he? Well, except right. in terms of sending him back to Africa. And now I will say, too, uh, from just from my digging into this, uh, we talk about the Compromise of 1820 and 1850. That mm-hmm. There were three big figures in the American Senate then, uh, Pastor Eli. Mm-hmm. It was Henry Clay, Daniel Webster... And in the, representing the South, John C. Calhoun. So Henry Clay is no one to uh, scoff at. Him oh, no. being the first president of the American Colonization Society, that's really big, folks. This is like a top senator, Henry Clay. So, yes. Oh, yeah. No, he's big time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're moving on with the article. We're going to get into the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. These are where the great, the great legendary quotes of – Abraham Lincoln and his white supremacy are going to come through, folks, so hold on. In 1858, Lincoln was nominated by the newly formed Republican Party to challenge Stephen Douglas, a Democrat, for his Illinois seat in the U.S. Senate. During the campaign, the little giant, Stephen Douglas, focused on the emotion-charged issue of race relations. He accused Lincoln and Republicans in general, of advocating the political and social equality of the white and black races, and of thereby promoting racial amalgamation. Lincoln responded by strenuously denying the charge, and by arguing that because slavery was the chief cause of miscegenation in the United States, restricting its further spread into the Western territories and new states would, in fact, reduce the possibility of race mixing. Mm-hmm. Lincoln thus came close to urging support for his party because it best represented white people's interests. Between late August and mid-October 1858, Lincoln and Douglas traveled together around the state to confront each other in seven historic debates. On August 21st, before a, gra- before a crowd of 10,000 at Ottawa, Lincoln declared this, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it, it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. He continued on, I have no purpose to introduce political and social equality between the white and black races. There is a physical difference between the two, which, in my judgment, will probably forever forbid their living together upon the footing of perfect equality, and inasmuch as it becomes a necessity that there must be a difference, I, as well as Judge Douglas, am in favor of the race to which I belong, having the superior position. Many people accepted the rumors spread by Douglas supporters that Lincoln favored social equality of the races. Before the start of the September 18th debate at Charleston, Illinois, an elderly man approached Lincoln in a hotel and asked him if the stories were true. Recounting the encounter later before a crowd of 15,000, Lincoln declared this, I will say then that I am not, nor have ever been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social or political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office nor to intermarry with white people. He continued on saying, 
I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on the terms of social and political equality. He and, really didn't say that, did he? <laughs> <laughs> okay. As much as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the, posi- the position of superior and inferior and uh-huh. I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. There you go. I hope people are enjoying this speech, <laughs> right? Because most people are not aware this is Lincoln's true position on race. Okay. Yeah. Moving on to Abe Lincoln as candidate for president. Though he failed in his bid for the Senate seat, the Lincoln-Douglas debates thrust old Honest Abe into the national spotlight. In 1860, the Republican Party passed over prominent abolitionists such as William H. Seward and Salmon P. Chase to nominate Lincoln as its presidential candidate. In those days, presidential contenders did not make public speeches after their nomination. In the most widely reprinted of his pre-nomination speeches, delivered at Cooper Union in New York City on February 27, 1860, Lincoln expressed his agreement with the leaders of the infant American Republic that slavery is an evil, not be extended, but to be tolerated and protected where it already exists. Okay, so this is very important. Because this is the position that the Republican Party took, not the radical abolitionists. The radical abolitionists were opposed to this policy because they did not agree with Lincoln's uh, position on amalgamation. Okay, Many of these radical abolitionists were as much disunionists as southern slaveholders were. They wanted to destroy the Union, uh, Lincoln's version of the Union. As well. Okay, back to you. This is all Republicans ask, all that Republicans desire in relation to slavery. And he's saying, folks, that it not be extended. It can be right. tolerated in the South, but we are not extending this West. Right. Yeah, yeah, the Republican Party is taking a firm stance against increasing the number of slaves in the new states. That's what they were afraid of. Okay. He emphasized this, underscoring the words in his prepared text. After stating that any emancipation should be gradual and carried out in conjunction with a program of scheduled deportation, he went on to cite Thomas Jefferson with this. In the language of Mr. Jefferson, uttered many years ago, it is still in our power to direct the process of emancipation and deportation peaceably, and in such slow degrees as that the evil will wear off insensibly, and in their places be, on an equal basis, filled up by free white laborers. There you go. Okay. Because white laborers were prevented from working in the South because of the slave system. That's where your terminology of, uh, well, po-white, yeah, uh, but what was the uh, the blacks referred to poor whites in those days as white trash? That's where the term white trash comes from. Back to you. On the critical question of slavery, the Republican Party platform was not altogether clear. Like most documents of its kind, it included sections designed to appeal to a wide variety of voters. One plank, meant to appease radicals and abolitionists, quoted the all men are created equal passage of the Declaration of Independence, though without directly mentioning either the Declaration or non-whites. Another section, designed to attract conservative voters, recognized the right of each state to conduct its own domestic institutions as it pleased, domestic institutions here being a euphemism for slavery. Still another somewhat equivocally worded plank upheld the right and duty of Congress to legislate slavery in the territories when necessary. On election night, 
November 7th, 1860, Abraham Lincoln was the choice of 39% of the voters with no support from the Deep South. The remainder had cast ballots either for Stephen A. Douglas of the Northern Democratic Party, John C. Breckinridge of the Southern Democrat Party, or John Bell of the Constitutional Union Party. Still, Lincoln won a decisive majority in the Electoral College. By election day, six Southern governors and virtually every senator and representative from the seven states of the Lower South had gone on record as favoring secession if Lincoln were elected. In December, Congress met in a final attempt to reach a compromise on the slavery question. Senator John H. Crittenden of Kentucky proposed an amendment to the Constitution that would guarantee the institution of slavery against federal interference in those places where it was already established. A more controversial provision would extend the old Missouri Compromise Line to the West Coast, thereby permitting slavery in the Southwest Territories. On December 20th, the day South Carolina voted to secede from the Union, Lincoln told a major Republican Party figure, Thurlow Weed, that he had no qualms about endorsing the Crittenden Amendment if it would restrict slavery to the states where it was already established and that Congress should recommend to the northern states that they repeal their quote-unquote personal liberty laws that hampered the return of fugitive slaves. However, Lincoln said he would not support any proposal to extend slavery into the Western territories, and subsequently the Crittenden Amendment then failed to pass. Okay, so given what we were talking about, about the colonization society, the South was not willing to give up its slaves for money. Lincoln was very willing to compensate them to a great extent for their freed slaves and the condition being that they get sent back to Africa, the South did not go for that proposition. Okay? Their slaves were uh, worth a lot of money. They were worth a lot of money and they were hoping to make more money by, sending the, by selling them west. Okay? They have to take the economics into consideration here and to say the South was pro-slavery the North was not necessarily abolitionist. This clarifies the issue. The North was in favor of preventing slavery moving westward, thereby limiting the number of black slaves there could be possibly in America. All right, back to you. Moving on to Southern fears. Less than one-third of the white families in the South had any direct connection with slavery, hmm. either as owners or as persons who hired slave labor from others. Moreover, fewer than 2,300 of the one-and-a-half million white families in the South owned 50 or more slaves and could therefore be regarded as slave-holding magnets. The vast majority of Southerners thus had no vested interest in retaining or extending slavery. But incitement by the Northern abolitionists, mm. where fewer than a, a half a million blacks lived, provoked fears in the South, where the black population was concentrated, of a violent black uprising against whites. And it says in parentheses here, in South Carolina, the majority of the population was black. Concerns that the writings and speeches of white radicals might incite blacks to anti-white rampage, rape, and murder were not entirely groundless. Southerners were mindful of the black riots in New York City of 1712 and 1741, the French experience in Haiti, where insurgent blacks had driven out or massacred almost the entire white population. And of course, more recently at the time, the bungled effort by religious fanatic John Brown uh -huh. in 1859 to organize an uprising of black slaves. Okay, very importantly here, incitement by northern abolitionists provoked fears in the South about black rioting. 
Could this be anything other than propaganda from those radical abolitionists? And incitement or fears of rioting. See, fear, manipulation of fear. Just like COVID is manipulation by fear. Back to you. What worried Southerners most about the prospect of an end to slavery was fear of what the newly freed blacks might do. (laughs) Southern dread of Lincoln was inflamed by the region's newspapers and slave-owning politicians who portrayed the president-elect as a pawn of radical Uh abolitionists. Much of... Much was made of Lincoln's widely widely quoted words from a June 1858 speech saying this, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. During the critical four-month period between election and inauguration days, Southern Unionists strongly urged the president-elect to issue a definitive public statement on the slavery issue that would calm rapidly growing Southern fears. Mindful of the way that newspapers in the slaveholding states had either ignored or twisted his earlier public statements on the issue, Lincoln chose to express himself cautiously. To the editor of the Missouri Republican, for example, he wrote this, I could say nothing which I have not already said and which is in print and accessible to the public. Please pardon me for suggesting that if the papers like yours, which heretofore have persistently garbled and misrepresented what I have said, will now fully and fairly place it before their readers, there can be no further misunderstanding. I beg you to believe me sincere when I urge it as the true cure for real uneasiness in the country. The Republican newspapers now, and for some time past, are and have been republishing copious extracts from my many published published speeches, which would at once reach the whole public if your class of papers would also publish them. I am not at liberty to shift my ground. That is out of the question. If I thought a repetition would do any good, I would make it. But my judgment, but my judgment is it would do positive harm. The secessionists per se, believing they had alarmed me would clamor all the louder. Lincoln Mm -hmm. also addressed the decisive issue in correspondence with Alexander H. Stevens, who would soon become vice president of the Confederacy. Stevens was an old and much-admired acquaintance of Lincoln's, a one-time fellow Whig and congressman. Having seen reports of a pro-Union speech in Georgia by Stevens, Lincoln wrote to express his thanks. Stevens responded with a request that the president-elect strike a blow on behalf of Southern Unionists by clearly expressing his views. In a private letter of December 22, 1860, Lincoln replied to Stevens with this, Did the people of the South really entertain fears that a Republican administration would directly or indirectly interfere with their slaves or with them about their slaves? If they do, I wish to assure you, as once a friend and still, I hope, not an enemy, there is no cause for such fears. Okay, no cause for such fears. I think we could squeeze this one last short paragraph in. Okay. Lincoln went on to sum up the issue as he saw it. You think slavery is right and ought to be extended, while we think it is wrong and ought to be restricted. That, I suppose, is the rub. It certainly is the only substantial difference between us. Okay. To to Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, who had passed... um, well, I'll tell you what. Let me stop here. Yeah, because we're out, we're running out of time. But yeah, this, we got one minute left. So. This this carves up the issue down to its essence. The North, the Republicans wanted the extension of slavery stopped into the new territories, and the South would not consider that. Okay, but he had no intention of preventing it where it already existed. The Constitution prevented him from doing that. 
and he honored the Constitution. All right? Fair enough? Fair, fair to say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The, the Westerns, Western spread of slavery was the rub here. Well, that, was the, that was the true the difficulty that could not be overcome. All right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So when neo Confederates say it had nothing to do with slavery, folks, it's yeah. not exactly true. You <laughs> no, it's stop not. It. It's not true. Okay. They are misrepresenting Lincoln just as the Southern newspapers misrepresented him then. Okay. And it, there was no greater champion of racial segregation than Abraham Lincoln in his day. All right, folks. All right, Ted. We're going to continue this, and we're going to clarify these issues because you can't get this from modern-day politicians or old-time politicians. They don't want to talk about the race issue, okay? But it must be talked about. Thanks, Ted. Take care. All right, everybody. Come back and join us next Sunday because we're going to continue this discussion. And who knows how for how long because the, the truth about the Civil War, what really happened, has been so covered up and misreported by both sides, both North and South, and especially covering up the Jewish involvement in creating the Civil War, which we'll eventually get to. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Pastor Eli. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you next time. Praise praise Yahweh. Bye-bye, everybody. Praise Yahweh.